That was amazing. <laughs> well, if you listen to the words in the song, it talks about, I'm going to throw open wide the door, and then I will be yours until the end of time. And it's talking about a person's opening their life to put their trust in Christ, and then to walk through life with Him till the end of time. Um, it was 1973 when I did that, age 23, and it's been a long, long time now that I've been walking with Him. But this idea of a, a storyline, that there's an end of time, it's something that you find uh, in all world religions, usually not nearly as clearly as it's pointed out in the Bible, but, but vaguely. And I think that every human being, we sort of have this sense inside of us that, that there's this story, and this story should be cohesive, coherent. It should make sense. Life is supposed to make sense. And I think that inside of us, we've got this story that we know starts with the Creator, and then in between, He's at work doing something, and then He comes, He intervenes to close it out, to make sense of it all. And that's clearly what the New Testament teaches. Let me give you an example. In, in the New Testament, which is just 27 little books, and we call them books, but a lot of them are just little letters, actually, there's over 300 references to the second coming of Christ. So the New Testament is, is very much centered in this, this closing out of the story, this, this God story, and of course it all centers in Christ. Now this series is going to be different in a number of ways, but one is that it's going to be kind of like us doing a Bible study together. Uh, we're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's the very first book that the Apostle Paul writes. He writes it in about 51 A.D. And um, we're going to just go line for line. It's, it's five short chapters, and it's 89 verses. And in 89 verses, 21 of those verses deal with the second coming of Christ. So you've got about one-fourth of the book. But we're just going to go line for line. And I have a couple different goals. One goal is that uh, I hope this will help you when you are reading your Bible on your own that you'll see the way you read it. You'll see the way it kind of self-interprets and how to notice certain things. Because I, I'll tell you, at the end of the day, if uh, whatever I've been doing up here for a lot of years now, if it has not made you hungry and thirsty enough for the Bible to study it for yourself, then, then I'm really failing. Um, as much as I appreciate, you know, when we gather like this, and you can always derive something special when we gather for teaching like this, it doesn't substitute when you seek God personally in His Word. I've never met in my life a strong Christian, never met a strong Christian who doesn't spend personal time in God's Word and let Him speak to them personally from His Word. And so I hope that this series will just kind of help you to see that you can do this. We're going to, you know, try to unpack some skills for you as we go through. So the end of, it's an end-of-time orientation we're going to find in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so why don't you go ahead and turn there. It'll be page 1331. There's Bibles near you on the chair. And while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Um, I said already that the book was written in about 51 A.D. The Apostle Paul is the writer. Now, the Apostle Paul is about 46 years old when he writes this. He's been following Christ for about 17 years. And uh, prior to that, his first 29 years, he was quite on the opposite side. He spent uh, a lot of his years, his years, you know, maybe in his latter 20s, uh, trying to destroy the work of God, trying to destroy the movement of Christ. And some of you know that when the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was killed, he was there kind of holding the coats of the people that were stoning Stephen. So he was an enemy of Christ, but 
the resurrected Christ appeared to Paul from heaven, and the light was so much blinding that for three days he was blind. And he asks, he knows that he's dealing with God, and he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus from heaven says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. So he goes from the first persecutor and destroyer of the work of Jesus to becoming the most loyal follower of Jesus. And it's this same guy that's writing this letter now to this group of people called the Thessalonians. Now, if you wanted to understand where we get this letter from, if you were to go to the book of Acts in the New Testament, so you got like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, 17, and 18, you would have the storyline, particularly in chapter 17, the storyline of how this church in Thessalonica was formed. And so to give you a little bit of background, uh, well, let, let, me, let me do this first. Let me show you something on the screen. Life Application Bible. How, how many of you have a Life ap Application Bible? Okay, that's, that's good. It's been a good percentage of people in each service. Uh, if you have that, a lot of these little chronological things that I'm sharing with you, that would give you that. I mean, what, what I've done for years and years of Bible study, it's right there at your fingertips. So you, as a, let's say, a rather new Bible student, would have that background material. It will guide you, open the Bible up for you. So I can't urge you enough, if you don't have one, to get one. But now, it does have one inherent weakness, uh, the Life Application Bible. And any study Bible has one inherent weakness. It doesn't read itself. <laughs> so... You can have the Life Application Study Bible, and it can be a good thing to sit out on a table, but it's not going to do what it can do if you really get into it and open it up and study it for yourself. And here's what I want you to know. God wants us to know he will make his word clear and understandable to us. He, he wants you to understand. He wants to meet with you personally and connect with you personally in his word. Now, I'm going to show you a little map. And this shows you that Scripture is rooted in real historical, verifiable historical occurrences. Uh, archaeology is verifying the Scripture again and again. But Paul, he's starting out on what we call his second missionary journey. And he goes from Jerusalem up to Antioch. That's kind of the base church. And from Antioch, he starts moving back into territories where he had already established some churches. Now, this is what we would call Asia, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And you can see he goes to Tarsus, which was where he was from, and then he goes to Lystra and so forth. And finally, he gets up to Troas. Now, if you read Acts chapter 16, verse 9, it says that in the verses preceding that, Paul wanted to stay in Asia, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow him to. And he gets this vision in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, of this man who's in Macedonia saying, come and help us. So he believes that's the guidance of God. So they leave, they turn westward, and the gospel, the message of Christ, it goes for the first time into Europe. He crosses over. So from right there in Troas, you can see he goes to uh, Philippi is his first stop. And if you were to read in Acts chapter 16, the whole 16th chapter pretty much, you have how he planted a church in Philippi, how he ended up being persecuted, beaten very badly with rods, put in jail, and then he leaves there. And when he leaves there, he then heads off to the next stop, which you can see right above Philippi is Thessalonica. And in chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, if you read Acts 17, 1 through 9, you'll become an expert yourself. You'll know exactly how Paul formed the church of Thessalonica. What you'll find is that he went into the synagogue there, and for three particular Saturdays, he kept reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks that were there, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, was the Christ. 
And then from there he gathers believers and uh, soon chaos and persecution breaks out and they have to send him off to Berea. But you'll read all that when you go back now and you read Acts chapter 16 and 17 and so forth. So that gives you some background of um, this particular book that we're going to look into. And again, this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of a series in that we're just going to work line for line, verse for verse. But I hope that ultimately this will be of more benefit to you than some of the other types of series that we've done through the years. All right, let's start in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And um, we're really looking at this, that, that Paul was dealing with a people who had an awareness of a greater truth. In fact, I probably should start with this, that, that I think each of us in this room have an awareness of a greater truth, unless you were forced to be here today. And it's this idea that somewhere inside of every human being, there seems to be the God story. Uh, everywhere you find people, everywhere you find cultures, there, there are stories about God so, somehow starting things, working out a purpose, and then intervening to close things out. And when we hear the story of God, <clears throat> if our hearts, our minds are open at all, it, it resonates. We, we know this too. I think back in my own life, when I was uh, 23 years old, 1973, um, when I first heard the message of Christ, I had no knowledge that there was an evidentiary basis that gave great proof to the fact that the Bible is trustworthy, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I mean, there's compelling evidences once you know where to find them and study them. <clears throat> I didn't know any of that. All I knew was this, that as I was reading this book, I knew that, that there was a personage in the book or coming through the book that was reading me. I knew I was encountering God. I knew what I was reading with truth. It was almost like the story was already inside me, and this was just affirming it, and it resonated it. And so I believe that same story really is. It's, it's the fact that we're made in the image of God, and it's still there. And we have an awareness of greater truth, but a lot of times we're not that interested in probing into it at certain seasons over life. Paul goes into Thessalonica. These people are already in a synagogue. They're aware of greater truth. They're open to God. They're seeking God. He's not reaching people that are the furthest from God. He's not reaching hardcore atheists. They estimate today there's about 500 million atheists, hardcore atheists and agnostics alive. That's only about 7% of the population. And even those individuals have made a choice, Scripture says. They've chosen to block out the knowledge that they actually do have about God. But nevertheless, Paul's going to people in whom there's a, an awareness, awareness of a greater truth. And that gave him a good start in sharing the truth about Christ, which finishes out that story. Let's go now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 1, from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Uh, let's just start with, with unpacking things as we go. The word church, I'm sure many of you know the church has nothing to do with a building. Uh, it's a Greek word, ekklesia. It, it means people. It's the called out assembly. When you put your trust in Christ and decide that you're going to be his follower, you become a member of the church, the body of Christ. You have responded to the call of God. You have come out of the world, so to speak, and have become a part of Christ. You're a part of his community, the ecclesia, the called out assembly. So the word church, it, it doesn't have anything to do with buildings. For the first three centuries, for the most part, Christians didn't build buildings. Verse 2, he says, we thank God always for all of you, 
as we mention you constantly in our prayers. Well, why, Paul? Why are you thankful for these people? And I'm doing this so that you get a feel for how to read the Bible for yourself. You ask questions as you go. So he's praying for these people. He's giving thanks to them. Why? Verse 3 tells us why. Because. When you see words like that, you know that's, that's a connective. It's giving you an answer. Because we recall in the presence of our God and Father three things. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there was concrete action, evidences in the life of these people. When Paul came and presented Christ to them, they didn't just hear the word. They didn't just take it in. They started manifesting that they were allowing it to change and affect their lives. And it was visible. And that's why Paul was giving thanks. He goes on to say in verse 4, he says, We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has, what does it say? Chosen you. Now, now this can throw us a little bit. Well, what does it mean that God chose them? Does, does it mean that God just arbitrarily chooses people? He says, like, I want you, don't want you, want you, want you, don't want you. Does God just arbitrarily choose people? Well, we know better than that. So when you read at other portions of Scripture, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that, that God makes his choice of those that he calls his chosen based on his foreknowledge. You can read it on your own in 1 Peter chapter 1. In other words, God foreknows that some people, given the opportunity to return to God in trust, will do so. And God says, they will be my chosen. And then he, he says he's going to do some things for them. He's going to, first of all, transform his chosen to the very image of his son. He's got, going to not just start a work of growth and development in us. He's going to see to its finish. So we become, essentially, the chosen ones of God when we choose Christ and become his followers. So it's not an arbitrary thing at all. Now he's going to explain why he knows they're chosen. He says, we know, brothers and sisters, I'm back in verse 4, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Well, let's ask, how do you know they're chosen, Paul? Verse 5, in that our gospel did not come to you merely in what? Not merely in words, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Surely you recall the character we displayed when we came among you to help you, and you became, what is the word? Imitators. Imitators of us and of the Lord. Now that word imitators, you're going to find it again in chapter 2, verse 14. You're going to find it in chapter 3, verse 7. We'll come up on it again. Paul is saying the reason I know you guys are chosen is that when you heard the message of Christ, you started changing your life, modeling your life after us, meaning Paul and his team of missionaries that were with him. He says, and not only did you start imitating us, changing your life to be uh, molded and shaped like us, you imitated Jesus himself. That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one that puts their trust in Christ because they want to be like Christ. We have to throw away this notion that it's just about wanting to go to heaven. Man, everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to go to hell. Being a Christian means, though, that Jesus has so won my trust. He has so won my affection. He has so won my adoration that I now want to be like him. I recognize that the universe can never be a beautiful place, the beautiful place that it was meant to be, the safe place, the loving place, the kind place, unless everybody is like Jesus. And so I put my trust in him. I joyfully submit to him. He created the universe. He loved me enough to sacrifice his life on the cross to prove his love for me but I want to be like him because I recognize we need a universe where everyone, angels and humans, all have the character of Christ. 
So they took action immediately. They didn't just hear the words. They didn't just think about the words. They weren't just religious. They became real followers of Jesus. It goes on in verse 7. And as a result, you became, excuse me, I think I skipped over something. Uh, Verse 6, let me go back and finish it out. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord when you received the message with joy that comes from the Holy Spirit despite great what? Affliction. Now, if you read Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 9, you'll know what some of that affliction was. They are persecuted by the Jews, and then they are persecuted by their fellow Greeks. Um, They're accused of trying to overthrow Caesar, the Roman emperor, and make Jesus the king. And one of their individuals, Jason, is ripped out of his home and, and fiercely persecuted. So this is what he's talking about. So when the message of Christ came to them, it didn't make their life easier. Some of you need to hear that because, I don't know, some Christians seem to have the idea that, man, if I put my trust in Jesus, then, you know, he's going to make the ball bounce in my direction all the time. Everything's going to go good with my marriage. Everything's going to go good with my kids. Everything's going to go good with my health. Everything's going to go good with my job. Why shouldn't it? I'm on God's side now. Surely he's going to be on my side. All power is his. Surely if he loves me, he's going to use all this power to put me into a protective ball and treat me as his special child and that's not at all what a loving God says is for our best he puts us in the rough and tumble with everybody else but he says you know the truth about life you know the truth about God you know that God is trustworthy you know that he's going to be with you to the end of time and you know he's going to intervene and bring the end of time he's going to end this this world we live in where terrible things can and do happen and he's going to bring in an everlasting time where only the right and the good things happen so we are to be realistic about what we expect as Christ followers these people They still had joy even though they were suffering circumstantially as a result of turning to Christ. I asked this in one of the other services. I'm going to ask you, how many of you, when you turned to Christ, became his follower, and maybe some people in your family, maybe some people you you work with, maybe some friends, but there were some people when, when they found out that you had become a Christ follower, they were rather negative about it and negative towards you because of it. Can I just see your hands? Once again, the other services like it too, lots. So you've experienced at least a tiny measure of some persecution, and sometimes it can hurt really bad. And so we're not protected from this, but when we know the whole story, the greater truth, it gives us the power to endure. And they were going on and receiving the word with joy. Let's go ahead in verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 8. He says, For from you the message of the Lord has echoed forth, not just in Macedonia and Achaia, that's land a little south of where they were at in Thessalonica, but in every place reports of your faith in God have spread so that we do not need to say anything. Now, first he said they were imitators of the apostles and of Christ. Then he said they were examples to the other believers in the area. Now he says... From them, the message of Christ was was spreading out. Get the picture. They were not just recipients of the message about Christ, but they were changing their life based on it. Not only were they changing their life and their conduct, their value system, their habits, but they were telling everybody about their new life in Christ. They were speaking out boldly. They were identifying with Christ with their mouths. 
Now, sometimes Christians get this notion that, you know, hey, man, you know, my, my, my relationship with God, that's a private thing. You don't talk about, you don't talk about God and, po- and politics. Well, don't talk about politics. I agree with that one. <laughs> but as a Christ follower, I'm called to talk about God. You're called to talk about God. Jesus said that we are to go into all the world and make disciples, that's followers of all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything Jesus taught. You and I have been given permission to be God's spokesman. You and I are given the opportunity to be bridges between ourselves and another human being in Christ. He's entrusted that work to us. These these brand new followers of Christ, they were already speaking out. They were already trying to reach other people for Christ. They were sharing what God had done in their life with others. How many of you, when you find a good good new restaurant in Frederick, man, you, you can't wait to tell a friend? Can I see your hands? You see, that's the way it ought to be with Jesus and, and FCF Church. That when we find something good, it's just spontaneous and loving to share it. That's what they were doing. Paul says, you guys, you guys, you are imitators of the Lord. You're, you're examples to others. And, and you started sharing the message far and wide. He goes on. Verse 9. He says, for people everywhere report how you welcomed us and how you turn to God from, what does it say? Idols. Let's pause for a minute. Idols. And we know in the biblical days, idols were literally statues that uh, represented gods and goddesses and so forth. So they were, they were religiously oriented to these figures. And so they were trying to get their sense of significance, their self-worth, their value from an idol. Or they were trying to get security in life from the idol. Or they were trying to get satisfaction in life from an idol. And you and I today, we're not likely to be bowing down to a hunk of stone or, or worshiping a goddess or something, but we can slip into idolatry without even knowing it sometimes. Sometimes we can make another human being our idol, you know, that, that, and our whole world rises and falls with that other human being. In other words, we start to derive our sense of value, our sense of significance, and our sense of security and our sense of satisfaction from another human being. It's putting too much of a burden on a, on a normal human being. Sometimes we, we, we make an idol of our jobs or our achievements or our accomplishments. That's a dangerous thing to slide into. But it says that these individuals, they left the idolatry behind they were now going to give their attention to the one that was worthy of it. They were going to get their sense of security and significance and satisfaction from the true God, the true creator alone. And so that should be true of all those that are followers of Christ. So he says, you turn to God from idols, and he goes on to say, to serve. Notice, they immediately started serving. Servanthood is a normal part of being a Christ follower. And to serve the living and true God, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, our deliverer from the coming wrath. And here we have this second coming introduced. Now, as I said earlier, there's 89 verses in this book of 1 Thessalonians, but 21 of them are devoted to the second coming. Paul writes 2 Thessalonians just a few months after he writes 1 Thessalonians, and about a third of it is devoted to the second coming of Christ. Paul believed that the second coming of Christ should be central in the life and mind of every Christ follower. It's the story. It's the completion of the story. And when we know how the story ends, it gives us courage in the here and now to be faithful 
and to endure sometimes circumstances that are not the most comfortable. It's interesting, it says here that he will deliver us from the wrath to come. When you study the, the doctrine of God's wrath in Scripture, God's wrath, we, we tend to think of it as like his, his anger when he's punishing people outrightly. But when you really study it in Scripture, God's wrath is primarily, primarily his saying to me, you want to do it that way, Randy? Have it your way. Do it your way. Remember the parable of the prodigal son where, 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 where the rascal son comes to his dad before his dad was dead and he said, hey, I want my inheritance, dad. Give it to me before you die. And the father knows he's up to no good, but he says, oh, okay, you can have it. And then the son goes out. He blows it all, gets where he's trying to eat pig's food, and then he comes back home to his dad and his father welcomes him back. But God's wrath, according to Romans chapter 1, you can read this on your own, you can start in verse 18 and you can go all the way through verse 32 in Romans chapter 1. You might want to make a note of that. The expression of God's wrath is that he just lets us human beings have our way. And says, okay, you don't want my way, have it your way and see what it brings. There is a second way that God expresses his wrath. And it's mostly at the end of this story, this divine story where Jesus does return. It's toward the end of the age. And then God starts to do a demolition work on planet Earth. But a lot of that is man's own demolition work and some atmospheric stuff to make way for the coming kingdom. So God's wrath is used in a couple ways. But these individuals were living, waiting. They, they, weren't, they weren't afraid of the return of Christ. They were waiting eager for the return of Christ. And this is written to let us know that, that these are things that should characterize brand new believers, brand new followers of Christ and healthy followers of Christ. So these individuals might have looked like the least likely to be reached for Christ. So when you think about it, here's Paul. He's a stranger. He's a Jewish guy. He just came from Philippi, taking a beating in Philippi. He was beaten with rods. He comes into this town. He's a stranger. He's a 46-year-old Jewish guy. He starts talking to these strangers, most of them Greeks, and he's telling them about this God, this invisible God who rose from the dead and who's going to come again. And it just didn't look like a likely situation of reaching people. John Ortberg, Christian writer that you might be familiar with, he's a pastor of a church in uh, California, Presbyterian Church, he tells a story on himself. He said he was invited to this banquet one time, and he said he went to the banquet, and all these strangers were seated around him. You know, he, he didn't know the people. And he said, uh, at one point, this very attractive lady sat down at the table, and he said, and then shortly thereafter, this really slick-looking guy sits down at the table. He said, and this guy immediately, when he sits down, he turns to the attractive lady and he says, hey, he says, what have you been doing here besides turning every head in the room? And at that point, John Ortberg spoke up and said, oh, I've just been eating my lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and so he caught the guy off guard uh, with the humor. They started having conversation. And Ortberg's script, and he says, this guy was far, far, far from God. He was a, a stone rascal. But they kept talking. And Ortberg says that even though he looked like the, the least likely candidate, the conversation drifted towards spiritual things. And so Ortberg just took a flyer. He says, hey, look, why don't you come to church next Sunday? You know, I go to this church that kind of specializes in your type of people. The guy shows up. He's in the front row that very next Sunday. And at the end of the message, he goes bolting up to Ortberg, who was speaking. And he says, man, he says, where do you get your material from? <laughs> Ortberg says, it's this, this book here called the Bible. This dude had never read the Bible. 
he goes and buys a Bible, starts reading 20 to 30 pages a day, comes back every week to the services. Ortberg in time just kind of loses track of him because he just becomes a regular there. Years go, years come and go, Ortberg sees him at another function. The guy is running toward Ortberg, smiling. He's got a friend with him. He's dragging the friend, and he's saying, I want to introduce you to the guy that introduced me to Christ. I wonder if there's somebody in your life right now, and they look like the least likely person to turn to Christ, and yet they're just waiting they're just waiting for a conversation. Ortberg says at the end of the story, he says, I almost didn't give that man the opportunity. Sometimes we're so intimidated by somebody, we feel like they're so far from God that it's so unlikely we, we don't give them the opportunity. And, and that's an unwise thing because the gospel, this message has power. The story is already in every human being. And when we speak it forth, sometimes that, that brings it alive. And they know that this is the truth about God and life. Well, these individuals, they were not only aware of greater truth, but we see they, they adjusted their lives to the greater truth. They imitated the apostles and they imitated Christ. They became examples. They became what we call witnesses. They started telling others. Here's a couple of verses that reinforce this, this concrete change of our life adjustment when we really trust Christ. In the book of Romans, Paul says, thank God, once you were, past tense, you were slaves of sin, but now, present tense, you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Paul is talking about concrete life change in these individuals. They used to be slaves of sin, but the power of sin had been broken in their life when they turned to Christ. And now they were living obedient to the word and the will of God. We should ask ourselves, does that describe my experience? Here's another one from the book of 3 John. 3 John chapter 1, verse 3, it says, John says, I was overjoyed. When the brothers and the sisters arrived and they spoke highly of your faithfulness to the truth. Well, how did John know they were being faithful to the truth? Shown by how you what? How you live according to what? What that means is this. It's when I really trust Christ, I go to his word because I can't understand his will unless I go to his word. That's where he's put it. And when I find in his word that he tells me, stop doing something, because I trust him, I stop doing it. Is that what you do? And then I go to his word and I learn that he tells me, start learning how to do something, Randy. Start, start developing a certain trait or characteristic, and then I start trying to do that. Is that what you do? Because that's what Christians do. That, that's what these Thessalonican brand new Christians were doing. Folks, that's normal Christianity. That's the mark of being the chosen ones of God. It's when we don't just know the truth here, but we let it impact us inside and then outside in our behavior. And we live in light of the second coming of Christ, and it becomes the, the modifier of our value systems and our actions, and we don't have to get it all now, and we don't have to have a bucket list because we're living for a story that goes past the end of time. Let me close with this. John Kennedy, when he was running for president, he used to like to tell a story uh, about a true historical event that happened in May the 19th, 1780 in Hartford, Connecticut. It's called the Dark Day, and the House of Representatives were meeting in Hartford, Connecticut. Early in the morning, they started, and all of a sudden, in early morning, the sky got dark, and it got darker and darker until literally it got like black night outside. 
and people were freaking out. They were terrified. And even these guys in the House of Representatives started saying, it's the judgment of God. It's the judgment of God. And so there was this one guy there named Colonel Davenport, and here's his quote. He said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. And if it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. Now, Davenport had the right idea. When we know the story that goes through the end of time that centers in the return of Christ, it should not cause us to be less involved in life, in daily life, in service for God, in service for others. In fact, it ought to cause us to be more involved, more motivated, more inspired. But there's a second closing to this that I want to share with you. When you ask yourself the question, why, why is this here? Well, why that chapter that we just studied now together, and I hope it's given you a better idea on how to read the Bible on your own. Um, why is it there? I mean, God had this. Do you think those Thessalonians knew that God was going to write this story about them and cause people to remember it for 2,000 years? I'm sure they had no idea. I'm sure those Thessalonians were just like you and I, and they still had struggles with certain habits and struggles with sin, and I'm sure they were up at times and down at times, and I'm sure they had struggles relationally and struggles vocationally, and, and they probably weren't always these models that we're, you know, introduced to here, but we're, we're ne we never hear about that. The only portrait we have of them is, man, oh, man, my kids. Picture it like this. Here's God, a proud father, saying, do you see my kids? You see my kids in Thessalonica? You see what they did? When no one else would take the risk, they opened their hearts to me. They took my word in. They changed their life right in front of all their peers. Even when they were persecuted, they didn't turn away from me. No, far from it. They just kept telling others about me. And we don't know anything else about them. But I want you to know that if you are in this passage... Maybe you see yourself in that light of your present struggle. But a loving father sees you in light of that time when you opened your heart and said, Lord Jesus, I'm going to trust you and follow you fully and freely and forever right to the end of time. He sees you in the best light and wants us at times at least to know that he's righteously, holily proud of we, his children, pleased with we, his children. So I think that's the other message that I hope you'll take away from this. Um, let's close in prayer. Father, you see us all today. You know our condition. You know our hearts. You know which of us have indeed opened our hearts and put our trust in you, Lord Jesus, and are your followers. And you know which of us maybe are still pondering that. May your spirit uh, wrestle with each of us to where we need to be. Maybe some of us just need to see ourselves as pleasing in your sight because we are your chosen. Maybe others of us need to take that, that step, uh, that step that I took back in 1973 to become followers of Jesus. May your spirit have your way in each of our hearts and lives. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.